Welcome to the Dr. Lori Morris podcast, where she interviews experts in health and science, sharing their expertise so you can live your healthiest life. This episode of the podcast is proudly sponsored by Fit Vegan Coaching, the world's leading whole food plant-based body recomposition program for Gen X and baby boomers. Founded by Maxime, whose personal journey began after losing his ex-fiance to breast cancer, Fit Vegan Coaching is on a mission to disease-proof the world through the transformative power of plant-based eating and fitness. This program is the Rolls Royce of plant-based coaching, offering all-inclusive services, personalized plans, world-class accountability, lifelong support, and more. Say goodbye to the yo-yo dieting and embrace a lasting transformation that will rev up your metabolism even post-transformation. Ready to take charge of your health and vitality? Head over to fitvegan.ca, that's fitvegan.ca, and mention Dr. Lori for exclusive bonus savings when you sign up. Don't miss this opportunity to join the movement towards a healthier, fitter, and more vibrant you. This episode of the podcast is proudly sponsored by The Healing Kitchen, your path to vibrant health. Immerse yourself in the transformative program, guided by the combined expertise of myself, Dr. Lori Marbus, and Chef Brittany Giroudi, who has lost 70 pounds on a whole food plant-based diet. Here's what's in store for you. Virtual weekly sessions. Engage in an immersive 60-minute virtual session every single week, where you'll delve into the world of wholesome plant-based goodness right from your own kitchen. Cooking with Brittany the first half hour. Unleash your inner chef as you're captivated by Chef Brittany Giroudi's culinary mastery that will delight your taste buds and nourish your body. Medical Q&A with Dr. Lori the last half hour. Prioritize your well-being during the second half hour. I will personally address your medical inquiries, providing evidence-based insights and personalized advice, empowering you to make informed choices for your health. So join us on the Healing Kitchen to help you step into a healthier and most vibrant future. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Dr. Lori Marvis, and today I'm really excited to interview Corey Davis, who is the son of Brenda Davis. Yes, the Brenda Davis, the, the OG registered dietitian of the plant-based world. He helped co-author Plant Powered Protein, which is one of the newer books that Brenda and Corey have put out. And so welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Lori. It's a pleasure to be here. And we co-authored that book along with another one of my heroes, Vicento and I'm also the son of my father, Paul Davis, who is another one of my heroes as well, well who's taught me so many life lessons about the environment and human well-being and those connections. Probably one of the smartest people I have ever known. Well, it sounds like you have a wonderful uh, childhood and upbringing and resources yet still. So that's fantastic. I'm very blessed. <laughs> that's right. Um, as we get... And as we get started, you know, I, I think we can maybe, if you can share your, your specialty and what you do, and then we can maybe get into the ecological impacts of food and just kind of, you know, take the conversation from there. Sounds good. Well, first and foremost, I've been an activist from a very early age, going on tour with my mom, Brenda Davis, across the United States over 49 states over 100 cities on the compassion for animals road expedition where i led all kinds of cooking demos to teach people how to cook environmentally friendly 
foods and ethical foods to leading discussion groups on the environmental impacts of food. Um, and from there, I went into post-secondary thinking I would be a sociologist or something in the social sciences. I had done a lot of uh, training in outdoor education before then, just out of high school where I became a sea guide and uh, rock climbing instructor and canoe instructor, things like that. And I really wanted to bring people closer to nature. And I thought going into sociology or social services in some way, shape or form, I could help troubled youth or whoever make a better connection and develop a sense of place that really takes at the center point the land in which we live. Um, but in that venture, I found a profound um, motivation inside of me to, to go deeper into the environmental impacts of, of society. And so I went into environmental land use planning, followed that I did environmental science, then a couple master's degrees in business and intercultural communications. Part of the work I've done over the past several years is working with indigenous communities across British Columbia and Canada on natural resource development. So trying to mitigate the impacts of natural resource development on the rights and title of Indigenous peoples in collaboration with them, which is inextricably linked to their rights and title on the land in which we live. And I guess that about sums it up for me. Well, that's, but, that's, a, that's a lot to sum. I love that and how you followed your heart and found a really unique niche to work on and really make a big difference. So yeah, can we get thank back you. And to- I, And I should yeah. add that I'm a professional agrologist by trade which is deals with the management and conservation of environment of um, agricultural lands for food production. And my specialization in that is environmental conservation. And the way I view it, all the habitable land in North America and indeed the rest of the world is agricultural land, which was used by indigenous populations for thousands of years to harvest and uh, maintain medicinal and traditional food plants, as well as sustaining uh, a way of life. Mm-hmm. Uh, absolutely. So I think there's there's a lot to unwrap here. So can we maybe start with the current state of affairs? Can we speak to what is our food system doing to our environment from your perspective? My goodness. So from my perspective, Agriculture is the leading driver of many of the environmental impacts we see today. But first, maybe I'll just preface this with with something that the environmental crisis we're in, because it is a crisis, is inextricably linked to the social crisis. And I'd like to introduce a concept, systemic environmental discrimination which refers to environmental impacts that are not evenly distributed among social or racial groups that often results in socioeconomic disparities that is perpetuated by political, economic, and uh, social systems. And when we talk about 
environmental impacts, it's important to start by defining what we mean there. And, and I'll put it very concisely that environmental impacts are just changes in our environment, our surroundings that have an adverse effect on air, land, water, fish, wildlife, or, or the inhabitants of an ecosystem could be humans. Such impacts like pollution, and note that most of these impacts have a direct link to public health and quality of life issues. And there's many routes or pathways to environmental impacts, and they all typically start with me and you. We demand a product and industry must produce it. And production creates environmental impacts. In other words, when we buy something, it creates demand and industry provides it at some environmental cost. An environmental cost that is often not reflected in the price of the material good that we're buying and the cost that we're not paying for ends up being absorbed by society at large through the loss of ecosystem services that the environment provides or the addition of carbon to our atmosphere, chemicals in our water. But again, that impact is disrupted disproportionately distributed to the most vulnerable communities. And that's why it's so important that you know where your food, your clothing, your electronics, or whatever comes from. Like, I bet you didn't know that, or many of the listeners don't know that a smartphone contains 75 different elements that need to be mined from the environment. And do we know who mined them? Was it children? Were they slaves? From what country? Do they have enforceable environmental regulations? Who's drinking the contaminated water? And as consumers, we have a duty, a duty to know what we're buying. And every dollar we spend is a vote for what you want the world to become. You give that money to industries that make the world what it is today. Do we ever vote for a politician without knowing anything about them? I'm guessing not. Now, air pollution, for example, is definitively disproportionately distributed. If you can afford it, you'll buy a home in an area with good air quality. And in turn, you'll likely need to drive further to work, which requires road development and maintenance further from the core areas of town, which has another suite of impacts from habitat fragmentation to increased dust in the atmosphere. Your house will likely be larger than in poorer communities, so you'll use more natural gas, wood, oil, or coal to heat or cool your house, thus contributing even more to air pollution. And if you can't afford it, well, pollution is demonstrably correlated with socioeconomic disparities that disproportionately impacts minority communities. Socioeconomic disparities include things like um, access to health care, wealth, education, and other important services. And people with lower socioeconomic status often have higher risk of disease and disabilities. Things like access to education certainly increases the likelihood that someone brought up in a polluted area will remain there and raise their kids there. But the pollution present linked to things like cancer, cardiovascular disease, lung disease, respiratory problems, well, the sense of place only further perpetuates the disparities that are already present just for being a minority. And when I talk about agriculture, I like to really drive 
the point down that this is by far the most impactful industry on the planet, but it's also an industry that has so much opportunity to improve. There's industries out there that make an impact, but that gap of improvement is fairly narrow. Agriculture is one where we could transform the industry into something so much better. We could minimize the impacts and we could drastically improve biodiversity and create resilience in our ecosystems, the ecosystems that provide that are the life-sustaining systems. They're life-giving systems. They maintain our quality of life and our health. So I just want to put that out there, that protecting our environment is a matter of social justice. It's embarrassingly underrepresented in the mainstream, at least where I live. But I'd like to preface it by that. And I like to perhaps categorize the impacts of climate change to a few categories, like I typically parse it out and talk about water pollution, water use, land use, greenhouse gas emissions. But it's also important to note that all of these things are linked. Water use, water pollution are linked to land use and to climate change. There's a thread there that tells a much broader narrative um, that I'd like to get into at, a, at any time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I, it's a very large onion that we can feel yes. back today. So where do you think the most startling facts that maybe many people don't understand and can't appreciate, but maybe that's also something that there's something that they can do, like different choices? Is there, you know, because, yes. you know, there is the high level, but bringing it down into actual items for the everyday person, is there any particular area that you feel would be very helpful there to explore. Sure. Um, first, let's talk about land use, because I think this is perhaps the biggest environmental impact in the world that's often never talked about. Like, we do talk about it. We talk about it when we talk about urban sprawl, things like that. Um, I hear that all the time. But I guess the elephant in the room that few people are talking about is agricultural land use talking about urban sprawl. I hear it all the time. Urban areas perhaps make up 1% of the planet's surface, whereas agriculture takes up about half of the planet's habitable surface. Wow. Surely, efficient use of agriculture should be the central point of conversation whenever we're talking land use planning. Mm. Um, millions of hectares of forest, including old growth in North America have been destroyed to make way for agriculture. A lot of it goes to pasture, a lot of it goes to animal feed to feed animals, and some of it also goes to human food crops um, globally. So I want to paint a picture because we've all heard that there's, a, or, or I hope most of us have heard that there's been biological declines, biodiversity is declining. We, we might have seen reports about 69% of population decline since 1970, things like this. I'm not sure if that's the best way to articulate biodiversity loss, but um, at least it's a starting point. And this is in large part 
related to land use change. So we're changing habitats that served a particular function largely to be wildlife habitat and turn them into something else, something to produce economic value, et cetera. And of course, as I mentioned, the largest user of the land on the planet is agriculture. 10,000 years ago, about 71% of the planet was covered by forests, shrublands, and wild grasslands. And the remaining areas were covered by deserts, glaciers, rocky terrain, otherwise barren land, and so when I say habitable land, I'm talking about that 71%. I'm not yeah. talking about the deserts, glaciers, rocky terrain, or otherwise barren land. And of the 71%, 57% was forests. So 57% of our habitable land was forests. 42% was wild grasslands and wild shrublands. And by the year 1700, of course, 10,000 years ago, agriculture started. In very small regional pockets, there would be tiny bits of deforestation to make way for olive plantations or grazing land. Um, but it wasn't until 1700 that we could start seeing um, more significant impacts to this land use change. By the year 1700, we lost about 5% of our forests and 4% of our grass and shrublands in exchange for crops and grazing land double the amount of grazing land than crops. But it wasn't until about 1900 that things started to rapidly change where over half the forest lost that occurred over the past 10,000 years would occur since 1900. Today, 38% of our habitable land remains forests, while only 14% of wild uh, grasslands and shrublands remain. And we've replaced that with cropland and grazing land and a small amount of urban areas. Right now, um, we have 38% forest, 14% grassland, shrubland, wild at least, 15% cropland, and 31% grazing land, other 1% urban areas. And what these figures are telling us is that almost half of the planet's habitable surface has been transformed from forest, and natural grassland or shrubland to agriculture. And of that <clears throat> agricultural land, 77% of it is used for livestock grazing and crops for animal feed. And only 23% are used for crops to feed human. And note that that 77% is really disproportionate because it only produces about 18 or so percent of our calories. Mm. Yeah. Right. So that 23% is producing the vast majority of calories that humans get and protein content that we get. Um, or I should say 18% of our, our protein. I'm, I'm sorry, I don't know. I don't have the figures in front of me. So I don't know off the top of my head. But as the story is often told, ranchers, they're stewards of the grasslands. If they weren't using the grasslands for beef, or, or lamb or mutton, <clears throat> we would need to convert that land to soy plantations or other intensive crops that would be disastrous to the environment. And this story was told not all that long ago on, on CBC, on the Canadian Broadcasting um, radio station. 
And this is monumentally misinformed in a number of ways. The first, most soy is grown to feed livestock. And this is not for human consumption. Only 7% of soy is used to directly feed humans, and the lion's share of that is for things like soybean oil used in processed food, which people should generally avoid, whether you're vegan or carnivore or omnivore or whatever. Only a few percent is actually used for things like tofu or tempeh. And funny story, actually, I'm looking around, I'm thinking about doing a PhD, so I've been interviewing all kinds of professors, trying to see what university I'd like to go to and what pro professor I'd like to sponsor me. And uh, one of the sponsors, I was telling them I'd like to do a study on land use in British Columbia and agriculture. Talked about my diet and would like to like to compare what would happen land use wise if we transition to a more plant based diet. And he said, "Soy, tofu, that's a destructive monoculture crop, and this and that." <laughs> well. Go to your grocery store shelves, whether you're an omnivore, carnivore, vegetarian, vegan, whatever, and, and look at the tofu available. They're almost always, like at least here, they're almost always labeled non-GMO or organic. Mm -hmm. It's not that I'm against GMO in principle, but I'm skeptical of certain kinds of GMO foods, such as Monsanto Roundup Ready products, like Monsanto mm -hmm. Roundup Ready soy, almost exclusively used to feed livestock. In fact, Unearth did a really good uh, expose not all that long ago um, that looked at what industries are driving hazardous pesticide demand. And they found that animal agriculture is the leading driver of hazardous pesticides used in agriculture. That was so called Unearth? That. Yeah, Unearthed in Greenpeace. So you could check that out. Um, just look up Unearth Greenpeace hazardous pesticides and you'll see a bunch of articles and be able to they have a beautiful um beautiful infographic showing it <clears throat> so but here's the thing here's the second point it's, you wouldn't have to convert pasture to intensive cropland um, as it currently stands and this is excluding crops used for things like biofuels and other industrial applications we use approximately 4.13 billion hectares of land for agriculture um, to serve our current diets. 2.89 billion hectares of that 4.13, about 70% of total agricultural use is pasture. And people think pasture and they might think natural grasslands and cattle grazing in this picturesque landscape, but it's not exactly that. Um, it's it's a lot more nuanced, uh, probably won't get into all the nuances of grazing on natural pasture today, but note that here, at least in Canada, about 25% of pasture is called tame pasture, which is pasture that has been seeded with non-native grass and is typically irrigated, so it takes water. Um, but uh, with that aside, Almost 3 billion uh, hectares is pasture of that 4.13, and 1.24 billion hectares are used for crops, about 43% of which are used to produce crops that feed livestock, and 57% of those crops are used to feed humans. 
Now, if we were to just eliminate beef and mutton, keep dairy, keep chicken, keep pigs, we would not only cut the amount of land we use for grazing by 65% from 2.89 billion hectares to just over 1 billion, we would also reduce the amount of cropland required while still maintaining a healthy diet by 70 million hectares. That's an area larger than California plus Oregon. Mm. So that's a, a very large area. Um, and that's because cattle don't just eat um, grass. They don't just eat um, parts of crops that humans don't eat, the waste parts of the plants. They also eat crops dedicated to them. Um, for example, in Canada, we feed our, our cows a lot of barley. In the States, they feed a lot of corn, but they're also fed soy from the Amazon. They're fed all kinds of things. Um, if we were to also eliminate dairy, we would eliminate the need for pasture entirely and further reduce the amount of crops required to feed the globe by another 70 million hectares. So if we were to eliminate beef, mutton, and dairy, we would reduce the total amount of agricultural land we currently use by almost 75%. Wow. And reduce the amount of cropland we use by 140 million acres. This argument that we would have to convert pasture to more intensive cropland is definitely mute. But we were all to go vegan, for example, which might not be practical for all, but this is a hypothetical theoretical example by eliminating chicken, eggs, peat, pig, meat, any other kind of animal food product, we would eliminate the need for another 100 million hectares of cropland used. We would be using less than 75% or less than 24% or around 24% the amount of agricultural land we currently use today. So the argument that grazing livestock is an alternative to the use of intensive cropland is certainly misinformed and provides a harmful message uh, to the public. So half of the planet has been deforested or altered to accommodate agriculture. And with that, we've been replacing wildlife with livestock at a devastating rate. 10,000 years ago, about 4% of the mammalian biomass was human, and the rest was wildlife. And today, driven largely by agricultural expansion, only 4% of mammalian biomass is actually wildlife. 36% is human and 60% is livestock. So that biodiversity crisis I was alluding to is a real one. This is a an absolute fact. And it's a similar story with birds. Now, 71% of bird biomass is poultry. Only 29% is actually wild birds. And so there's a biodiversity crisis in conservation. And one of my heroes, E.O. Wilson, one of the most famous and well-respected ecologists of our modern era, rest in peace, um, once said that only by committing half of the planet's surface to nature can we hope to save the immensity of life forms that compose it? Unless humanity learns, and I have the quote in front of me, so I'm reading directly from it. 
unless humanity learns a great deal more about global biodiversity and moves quickly to protect it, we will soon lose most of the species composing life on Earth. So he puts forward this half Earth proposal, dedicate half of planet Earth to nature. Let's just save half. We can have the other half. Give back half of the planet's surface to nature. Now, with our current diets taking up half of the habitable land on the planet, I don't know of another way to get there without removing animal products from our food supply chains. That is the only legitimate solution, or at least removing beef, mutton, and hopefully dairy. Wow. And, okay. Go ahead. Yeah. Go ahead. Okay. Well, I'd like to also say, you know, we talked about the biomass of planet Earth, and there's a 60% of mammalian biomass is livestock. And this has resulted in a concentration of domestic livestock. Over time, we've been going from pastoral forms of farming to more intensive industrialized form of farming. And domestic livestock creates a cesspool of disease transfer. Hence, the vast quantities of antibiotics fed to them. I think in the United States, 80% of the antibiotics sold goes to animal agriculture, 70% of which are, are medically important. So similar to, to those that humans use. Mm -hmm. um, now, often the narratives we hear about disease in wildlife um, is disease-threatening livestock, avian flu, bovine tuberculosis, etc. Now, livestock producers here, um, and indeed in the United States as well, have campaigned to kill all kinds of wild animals, like wild elk near or on pastures, for two primary reasons. Um, first is that elk also graze grass and forage for food, and hence their competition for cattle. Um, but two, there's a risk that elk will tr transmit bovine tuberculosis to the beef herds. And the first time I heard this, I thought, wait, what? Our elk have tuberculosis? There's a tuberculosis problem in our wildlife? I've never heard it said like that before, though. I've only heard that elk presents a risk to cattle by transmission of disease. But wait, our elk are sick? And why? Why are our elk sick? And, yeah, they're sick. And it's because European cattle have infected wildlife with tuberculosis, who can now transmit it back to the cattle. But we only hear one side of that story, that our livestock industry is trying to protect their economic assets that are cattle for beef production, not the story that our wildlife is getting sick. Mm -hmm. I, if you're a hunter, you might not be aware of um, chronic wasting disease or CWD in, in wildlife like deer. And CWD is a prion disease like mad cow disease. Mm -hmm. Well, how the heck did it spread to our wildlife? We don't actually know, but there's three really good hypotheses. First, it could have transmitted through sheep farming in North America, through the, the sheep form of spongiform encephalopathy, the scrapies or scapies, I can't remember. Second, it could have transmitted through deer farming, so you concentrate deer. Um, three is that it could have spontaneously developed in wildlife. This 
could have been caused by ecological changes. For example, the loss of wild predators, which resulted in an increase in concentration of, of these wildlife populations who then became more exposed and vulnerable to contact or ingestion of each other's feces or urine. Uh, it might transmit from individual to individual, but um, why is this important? Our wildlife are sick. And like mad cow disease, there's a risk of spread. Our wildlife are sick and all we ever hear about is the health of our cattle, chickens and pigs. Avian flu is another example that is uh, generating a lot of media attention. But the point is that agriculture or livestock farming results in many impacts, much of which we don't understand and much of it of which goes undiscussed. Uh, the public is unaware and the narrative we hear are animal agriculturalists as the protagonists of the story, protecting their herds, chickens, etc. Um, but to me, the true story is a history of ecological degradation, I guess. Mm. So question regarding, you'd mentioned um, agriculture and animals, but I'm, I have a patient who mentioned that they moved to a more recent rural area and they noticed a foul odor it smells like ammonia in the air and it was like you know three miles away they noticed that there were like chicken cafos and different things like that and then you hear about for example in North Carolina and all the pig farms and how they're spraying feces on different fields and it's blowing into like you mentioned um lower uh, socioeconomic rural communities. Can you talk a little bit about the health impacts on humans? Because I think if we can highlight yes. that fact, people might be a little bit, see that as a bit more of an urgent issue. Because um, I, it's, it seems such a big problem, but when we kind of make it a story and see this is our human problem from your next door neighbor or you or your children or whomever, I think that's really impactful. Yeah, I really appreciate that question because I really like to drive it back to impacts to us because I think it will compel people to think about it more deeply. Um, yes, well, let's start with E. coli that, because it's top in, of my mind. My mom lives in Calgary and last year in Calgary, there was an E. coli outbreak where around 450 people had become ill, mostly children. Um, there are often E. coli infections that go largely unnoticed in the media, but here in Canada, there's been many documented major outbreaks. In 1980, um, there was an outbreak resulted in the death of a child. 1982 in Ottawa, um, 31 people got sick in a nursing home, one died. 1985, um, 19 people died in a nursing home. 1991, 520 Inuit people fell ill in the Northwest Territories. Two people died. Um, perhaps the biggest outbreak, when we call it an outbreak, was in Walkerton, Ontario. This is in, in Canada. I'm not as familiar with the United States. Um, but the NRDC did a really good report on CAFOs in the United States and impacts on, on water quality called um, CAFOs, what, what you don't know is hurting us really good report or expose on CAFOs in the United States. But in Walkerton, Ontario, in the year 2000, cattle manure infected the water supply where 2,300 people fell ill and seven people died as a result. 
And this was interesting. I studied it in, in my undergrad because manure, uh, particularly livestock ranching, is kind of a non-point source of pollution. It's so ubiquitous across the environment that mm. legally it's really difficult to demonstrate which rancher where you, you can't really charge somebody. Um, it's really difficult to, anyways, rather than a point source of pollution, which would be like a pulp mill. You could test above and below the pulp mill and you could tell exactly kind of what it's uh, discharging into the receiving environment. But with cattle, it's kind of, there's feces everywhere. It's washing in during the spring freshet. There could be a number of different ranchers everywhere. How do you, how do you really tell? It's really difficult. Um, but in Walkerton, with the Walkerton Inquiry, there's a, you could find the books on the Walkerton Inquiry, perhaps if they're still in, uh, in print. But um, it, it came down to the people responsible for water treatment in Walkerton. So they were to blame. And I agree, they were to blame because they didn't do due diligence in testing the water before it got into people's water supply. Um, but the origin was cattle. And it was found that the cattle rancher who was responsible, we know, because he was um, depositing it onto agricultural fields, and, and that's what leached into the water supply did everything by the books. So he was completely lawful. He wasn't responsible for anything. It, it was all the, the water treatment folks who, who were um, two brothers who were responsible for the water treatment system um, were legally liable for, for that incident, but not the rancher at all. And so we know that those regulatory the regulatory barrier, the protection mechanism just it wasn't strong enough in Ontario. It wasn't strong enough to protect our water, like the original cause. I would like to think that our water is safe. I, I often like to go on multi-day hikes, and uh, at which point I, I rely on the natural environment for my water supply. I've got to use, um, I use filter and use iodine, but still some people get sick. Um, still some people get sick, but, um, Anyways, it's well known that cattle the, are the major reservoir of E. coli, and it often originates there. Manure, fecal matter, we spread over our crops and environment, thus increasing the loading of this hazardous material in our food supply. However, other livestock, such as pigs, turkeys, sheep, they're also shown to have shed E. coli in their waste. Um, you know, in the United States, uh, I'll turn it back to the U.S., E. coli um, infections cause 73,000 illnesses, 2,200 hospitalizations, and 60 deaths annually, bringing the economic burden of E. coli illness to $405 million per year. However, this only scratches the, the surface. It really does, because um, as infection rates of E. coli are actually lower than other pathogens such as Campylobacter, Salmonella, but they do result in more hospitalizations and, and fatalities. But manure from livestock contains over 150 different pathogens, including Campylobacter, Salmonella, Listeria, E. coli, Giardia, Cryptosporidium, which accounts for around 90% of all water 
waterborne illnesses for humans. And of course, we know that waterborne illnesses and foodborne illnesses disproportionately impact um, the elderly and, and children. This is about protecting our children, right? Um, but the, F the FAO claims that there's a global water quality crisis, that water pollution is a global issue challenging economic growth and the health of billions. And agriculture plays a major role in water pollution through the discharging of large amounts of pesticides, herbicides, fertilizers, drug residues, and sediments into our very precious water bodies. This increases the, the risk to water-based ecosystems, drinking water, and economic potential. Um, you know, the, the BC Assembly of First Nations describes water as, as uh, the blood of Mother Earth and the the Rig Veda Hinduist text characterizes water as being like our mother and that to contaminate water means to destroy water. Mm -hmm. I really like that. Sometimes we don't do a very good job of bringing the human element back into the conversation. We just mm -hmm. tend to talk about facts, but I really appreciate the way that we, um, that we characterize this in culture like the importance of water, the cultural importance of water. You know, almost 40% of the uh, water bodies in the European Union are significantly impacted by agricultural pollution. In the United States, agriculture is the largest polluter of rivers and streams, significantly polluting wetlands and lakes as well. But livestock operations are growing and becoming more intensive than then our production of crops, which poses another threat, which is that increasing quantity of uh, waste, such as manure, pesticides, and fertilizers. Furthermore, um, new pollutants also emerged from the animal agriculture sector in the form of antibiotics, which we talked talk about briefly, vaccines and growth hormones, which enter our ecosystems and drinking water courses. Um, the health, World Health Organization recognizes zoonotic pathogens in the water as an important health concern also. Aquaculture, like producing fish on land, is also contributing to negative impacts from the waste, feed, antibiotics, fungicides, biocides, um, and disease. Biocides, I, I, I mean like um, anti fouling agents used to eliminate microorganisms. There's a really good book, um, Alexandra Morton here in British Columbia, who did an expose on some of those um, salmon farms mm. and um, the link to disease in, in our wild salmon. Her book was called Not, Not On My Watch, I believe. Brilliant expose of that whole issue. Um, but the environmental or the economic and social cost and environmental costs of agricultural caused water contamination, it costs billions of dollars every year. Um, e. coli alone, you know, 450 million in healthcare costs in the United States. But um, as the demand for food increases, so does the pressure on water quality. And as we approach 2050, often here, population is expected to rise over 9 billion people and 
All kinds of researchers are exploring strategies, including dietary change that might be necessary to mitigate the challenge of feeding everybody. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's a, that's a developing threat and um, antimicrobial resistance, of course, is, is another serious threat that the World Organiza Health Organization talks about. Um, and uh, yeah, antimicrobial resistance in humans. And we talked about um, how that might link back to animal agriculture with their huge use of antibiotics. But um, when I think about those CAFOs, CAFOs are, in the United States at least, are, are tend to be located in areas where minority populations, low-income populations exist. And so they're disproportionately impacted by those, um, by the, by the contamination. I mean, nitrates in the water, um, also the air pollution, etc. So I think that's a, a big issue. But we also got to think about um, even when everything goes according to plan and you follow the law, just like in, just like in the Walkerton, uh, Ontario example, things can still go sideways and mm -hmm. leakages can happen. Um, all kinds of impacts could happen to the environment by waste spills. And that NRDC report did a really good job of sort of summarizing some of those instances. Um, so um, first, maybe I'll just say, before I talk about some of those waste spills that happened in the United States, because some of them were quite, quite traumatizing and impactful. I, um, some are hard to even hear. But um, here in British Columbia, like we often think about, I'll bring it back to cattle first. Um, we often think about cattle as being like this pastoral way of producing food. It's people living on the land with their animals and, um, you know, they graze the land, um, the grass rejuvenates and they feed the people and it's sustainable, it keeps going. But what people don't often know, and I only know about here in British Columbia, but I'm sure it's similar across North America, over 90% of our cattle are auctioned off to feedlots in the fall. Um, so they might live a year, 18 months before they're auctioned off in the fall. So they have a very short life uh, of grazing before they spend maybe six months to a year in a feedlot before being slaughtered. Um, but these are massive feedlot operations. Um, most of our beef in British Columbia, 95% go to Alberta, just a couple of feedlots, like two or three feedlots, and some goes into Washington state. And these feedlots are CAFOs. They are factory farms, concentrated animal feeding operations. And they don't just accommodate cattle, but they accommodate pigs, chickens, or whatever other meat or dairy products we choose to eat. And CAFOs certainly present a significant challenge to both people and ecosystems. Um, so minor mistakes, unforeseen events 
that have the potential to lead to the release of manure into the environment can be triggered by transportation accidents, leaky lagoons, um, rain events leading to overflow, or even deliberate discharges, all of which are common culprits of fish mortality, threatening the, the health of aquatic ecosystems. Um, for example, in 2017 in Ohio, three spills killed almost 60, 67,000 fish. Minnesota absorbs about 20 spills annually, and in just one single Minnesota spill on Beaver Creek, um, around 700,000 fish died. And these large fish die-offs caused by manure spills have and can have lasting, like long-lasting negative impacts on the wildlife in those regions. And this is really significant, especially when we think about reconciliation with Indigenous peoples or just people who are vulnerable, who might rely on fishing in the rivers for sustenance even. Um, there are significant impacts to people in the environment and for the cultural connection that we might have as it relates to pristine environments. But um, in 2012, a pig manure leak in Illinois impacted over 20 miles or 32 kilometers of waterway that caused the deaths of 150,000 fish and 18,000 mussels. But the reason why this spill is so impactful to me is that um, two years, um, or sorry, before this spill happened, there was biologists that went out there and sampled nine different uh, fish species prior to the spill. And two years after the spill, they went back to sample those fish species and found none. Wow. Water is like our mother indeed. Yeah. <laughs> but right. it, it's it's really difficult for me to to think about that long long lasting impact from from a pig manure leak. So um, I mean you're highlighting all sorts of things. We have water issues, we have cattle, we have CAFOs, we have spills. I mean the Mississippi Delta into the Gulf. I mean we get dead zones. I mean there the it goes on and on what can we do like how you know it's it is a tremendous problem but what is the first step that as a consumer or an individual what can we do in our daily days our basis to improve because at the end of any discussion the most impactful are going to be what can you do on Monday? It's like, it's like, okay, I went to this conference. What can I do on Monday? You know, that, what would you highlight? Would you say with all your work that you've seen the most impact that one individual or a collective can make? Yeah, I really appreciate that question. It's a really good question. And it's a question that often makes people feel hopeless. And I don't feel that way. I think it was, Gandhi, and maybe this is a misquote from Gandhi, I don't know, be the change you, you want to see. And I, I really like to live by that mantra. But there's a lot of narratives out there that say, well, it's not us, you know, it's them who are profiting off of the environmental destruction. And I think there's a lot of responsibility there for industries and perhaps the economic system as a whole, which is a whole nother discussion. But I 
always think that individuals have power. Mm-hmm. We have consumer power, mm-hmm. right? Like I talked earlier, what every dollar we spend is a vote for what you want the world to become. But it's not just that direct impact of our consumer power. It's the impact we have on our loved ones and our friends and our family and the community that we find ourselves in. And I think that we have influence and we've got to be amicable about it. You know, I, th- I think the best way for, for me is just sharing food. We build communities around food, or at least we used to. I remember growing up, we'd always have um, block parties where we'd have barbecues together and things like that. I um, always knew our neighbors. It was always, food was always a place of community. And mm-hmm. it, it's sad seeing that um, trickle away. But food is still a, a profound source of social well-being and bringing people together. We often invite friends for food or um my my partner's parents that they live in China and they came and spent a year with us and we ate vegan dinners every single night for the whole year and uh, at first I think they found it really tough socially it was tough as well they'd always want to send or post pictures of the food I make back um, in in their Chinese social media like WeChat. And um, some people would respond saying, what, you can't afford meat? Hmm. Um, We often tend to think about, you know, vegan diets of being a diet of privilege. And uh, that's not, I I never thought of it that way. I always thought beans were super cheap, something I love to eat. But in China, like my partner, when she was growing up, she used to go and buy these um, junk food um, meats but they were all plant-based meats, but mm. also, so the junk food meats that were plant-based, those were cheap. Oh, they're cheap because it takes a lot less resources to produce. They were always cheap. And this was in the nineties. I mean, in the nineties, you couldn't find any veggie meat here in Canada. Like we might've had some Eve's uh, deli slices and Eve's burgers, but that was pretty much all, all that you can find. But in China, um, it, it was everywhere and they were mm. cheap. And, it was a sign of uh, socioeconomic status. If you could afford the meat, you'd buy it because it tells people that you're that you have a higher socioeconomic status. So when they were sending pictures back to China of the food that that I was making them, people did comment like, um, "Oh wow, you can't afford meat, this and that." But um, mm. I think it's also been appreciated as well. There. Um, those views. But what is the best thing? We have consumer power. We have the power to influence. I think sharing food is perhaps one of the best ways we could influence others. Um, By the end of the year, my in-laws said that um, they're going to take this tradition of eating vegan dinners back home with them. I think that's just so impactful. Mm -hmm. So impactful. So don't kid yourself. I mean, a lot of people will try and create the narrative that you don't have power. I think you do have power. Um, You know, when we think about the change and vast social change, those social movements, you only need a small percent of very dedicated people to create that change. Mm -hmm. Most people sit back and sort of um, scan the environment of what's the social norms. And it's a small percentage of people who push that um, 
that new agenda. And I think that, you know, the plant-based movement is a very strong one. Mm-hmm. And I think that we can create change, but as individuals, think about what, what you're purchasing. Um, there's other things we could do with, you know, trending our diets to include more plants. You know, you don't necessarily need to eliminate all meat or, or dairy, but trending our food towards plants is a very significant step at reducing our impacts. Our impacts on land use, climate change, biodiversity loss, water quality, all kinds of things. And those environmental impacts of, are, of course, social impacts. Um, mm. So I think both from a social justice standpoint and from an environmental standpoint, what we eat is of critical importance and has a profound impact. And if we can make foods tailored to the taste buds and the taste preferences of the people that we're cooking for, um, maybe that'll inspire them to try it out. And I think just that transmission of cultural change can go a long way in our daily life. I mean, we eat three times a day. We often eat with somebody else. I think right. that's such such a profound change. There is also, a, you know, if you um, make, making it a normal thing. You know, I don't mm-hmm. when I share foods with friends, I never say, "Oh, this vegan steak it was made without <laughs> harming animals, and uh, you should be ashamed of yourself if you eat steaks right. that harm." You know, they're going to put up their defenses, mm-hmm. and it also. Puts, it also positions yourself as being fringe mm-hmm. and you don't want I don't want um, right. plant-based eating to to be a fringe thing in society we need to normalize it well you need to set yourself up for success that's just yeah. common communications and human inter you know personal relationships but really it's a matter of raising the collective consciousness to awareness of what's going on we created this world, we can certainly create a new one. So, you know, every, every input matters. So that's the value of your education and what you're sharing with people. And they can make a different decision starting today with what's on the end of their fork, really. So I think it's fabulous. It's just a unique perspective that you have with your experience and your upbringing that a lot of people don't think about. So I think that's great because we always come into this a lot with, with health, right? As a physician, that's where I entered um, just because I had a patient experience that was so dramatic, but it was such a wonderful thing to see others come into it for different reasons and you learn. So I think that's great. That's right. Much appreciated. And just noting that, you know, we rely on the environment for our health as well. Yeah. There's been some studies suggesting that one in four chances of, um, or instances of disease and premature death are related to environmental degradation of some kind or another pollution, something like that. And I think that um, with agriculture being the predominant mode of environmental degradation, um, that is where we could see the most profound impact. Right. And I I think it's a, it's very interesting that when I work with patients who are ill, right? So they've obviously had an imbalance, not only in their, you know, their ecosystem is, is falling apart, but their internal ecosystem, the, the biggest bang for 
my buck, so to speak, is literally changing their diet. And that's what leads them down the path of, of wellness. And it's a really interesting phenomenon that it's the environment outside and internally that you'll see these two things kind of cross paths. But I think it's fantastic. Yeah, start with literally what you're eating. Just yeah. start with what you're eating. So, so yeah. sharing food, um, mm -hmm. trending towards plant-based diets, but there's more. Um, I always encourage people to explore the diversity of foods available. I always like when mm -hmm. I see a new vegetable or fruit that I haven't really tried before to take it home and experiment with it. Right. Like to go to my local farmer's market and buy leafy greens I've never seen before. <laughs> All kinds mm -hmm. of fantastic produce that people are are providing out there, but right. they're still fairly niche. Right. Um I think that there's a, a challenge with agro diversity, mm. the diversity of agricultural crops that we grow. Agro diversity, as the U United Nations puts it, is part of biodiversity. It is part of biodiversity, mm -hmm. right? And unfortunately, we get the vast majority of our calories from just a few simple crops and meat products. Mm -hmm. I think it's like maybe a dozen crops and a few meat products we get almost 100% of our calories from. Mm. Corn, potatoes, wheat, it's rice, etc. Mm -hmm. um, and with that comes a lot of risk to, right. to food security. Mm. Um, you know, what happened to bananas when the disease came through, right? Right. What if a disease comes... Or corn wheat right. or whatever and there's not we're not diversifying the strains of those commodities either as much as i think we should um, there's a go ahead yeah i was going to mention there's a really interesting book on bananas that you mentioned and just the history and evolution of bananas i think if people would read that they would be a little bit startled that could happen yeah. to any like you're saying these monocrop type situations they can have a devastating impact on, on our our food system so it's that's it's right a really interesting book yeah that's right and with such a few amount of products mm -hmm. um providing the vast majority of calories what happens if one gets wiped out mm -hmm. um, by a disease yeah that would have yeah. severe implications to global food security right and so right. I like to try to eat as many different grains as I can. I, mm. you know, buckwheat and amaranth and barley and kamut and whatever, you know, mm -hmm. I try and diversify that. Um, I think that's really important. And yeah. same with our backyards, you know, sure. if, we, if we grow a garden, we're increasing the biodiversity in our backyards mm -hmm. rather than just being grass. Last year, I, I, <laughs> took a shovel to my grass and started just taking it out of the ground and uh, building up the soils so I could plant potatoes, nice. uh, which grew awesome. And I had a whole bunch of purple potatoes, a different variety. Um, nice. I try and plant as many different things as I can in my backyard to promote um, bees and insects and birds and try and just make the land that I have... Um, taken from the natural environment and try and give something back a little bit. Yeah, but um, definitely diversifying our diets 
Um, we often hear about buying local and that's uh, reduces the amount of greenhouse gases for our foods. Mm -hmm. I encourage people to buy local and because you could get seasonal and I think seasonal foods make dinners fun. I love having fall themed dinners and summer themed dinner dinners and it just makes eating food all that much more enjoyable to me. Um, mm -hmm. Of course, buying local, uh, the reduction studies have shown like it's demonstrable that it's not really about if we're thinking uh, climate change, at least, and the contribution of agriculture to greenhouse gas emissions. It's not really about where the food comes from. It's about what you're eating. So about 5% of greenhouse gas emissions in agriculture results from the actual transport of the goods from place to place. Um, we often hear people pointing their fingers at vegans for avocados and so forth, um, which certainly is impactful. Um, most agricultural products are shipped by um, boat, which has a much lower carbon footprint than say by plane, probably half the carbon footprint. Um, but I like to support local because I like to support community and I want food culture, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Culture around sustainably produced foods. Um, of course, when we think about agriculture and um, emissions, it's largely the livestock sector, beef and uh, right. sheep and goats contribute the vast majority. Um, and, you know, the FAO, for example, asserts that about 14.5% of all greenhouse gas emissions comes from animal agriculture, um, which is probably a low ball. It's um, a lot of studies are more suggesting that it's in the 28%, 25% range. Some studies have came out claiming that it's 87% or, um, and they try and think about land use change. So we talked a little bit about land use change, and maybe we'll get into it um, very briefly in a bit. But um, I always like to just say, yeah, standard mode of thought is 14.5%, even if that's the low ball. Um, imagine that it is 14.5% of greenhouse gas emissions comes from ag animal agriculture. Transportation is about 11%. And so as much as we, as we hear, um, ride your bike more or car share or buy a hybrid, um, I think that if we're being rational and reasonable, we should also hear with that same veracity, eat less beef and dairy mm -hmm. if, if we right. want to cut emissions. If you were to go from a, um, a normal car to a hybrid car, a, a similar hybrid car, you would reduce your greenhouse gas footprint from emissions by about 40, 40%, 45%, something along those lines. Um, if you were to switch from eating beef to lentils, that's a reduction of 90% wow. uh, greenhouse gas emissions. The, you could certainly get a lot more bang for your buck mm -hmm. and it's cheaper. I mean, yeah. a bag of lentils is cheaper than, you know, however many steaks, <laughs> probably cheaper than one steak and you'll and get a lot healthier. more meals out of your well, lentils. That's right. 
and healthier. And so <laughs> there, it's a win-win-win. There's there's no negatives here at all. But um, if you had to say, you know, what would be your final recommendation for folks, you know, as we're coming up on, I kept you past your time already, but the, um, what would be your final, like, take-home message from everything that you shared with us today? Is there one particular thing that really want to drive the point home? Yeah, and I think I've already said it. It's Let's think about trending our diets towards more sustainable foods, which is predominantly plants, and let's mm -hmm. share them. Let's mm -hmm. share it, and let's make it a pleasant experience for others who might not be used to such plant-heavy diets that you're sharing mm -hmm. it with. Make it an enjoyable experience. Tailor mm -hmm. those foods to their to their palates, even if it's not what you would eat on a day-to-day -day basis. Inspire somebody else to try something new without necessarily pushing an agenda on, on our friends. So I really mm -hmm. think that sharing is caring. Um, and I think that's, that's the best way forward as an individual is trend your diet towards plants and share it and yeah. share that love with everybody else. Hey, it's a great message because you're sharing love with them. So you're inviting them for a healthier meal and a tasty meal, but also helping, as we should say, Mother Earth. So that's fantastic. That's right. And yeah. if your audience is or interested at all, check out our book, Plant Powered yep. Protein. There's a bunch of wonderful recipes in it. Um, yeah. Definitely try them, experiment with them, make your own, use the recipe as a baseline. We do talk about the environmental impacts of food. For example, we go through with uh, several charts showing the comparisons between different protein sources and the greenhouse gas emissions, water use, water pollution, land use. Um, so it's a really easy breakdown of the costs of, of those foods on the environment. So if you're interested, please check that out. There's a suite of resources online. I really love the website, um, Our World in Data, that takes data from all kinds of scientific literature on the environmental impacts of agriculture and the environment in general, and breaks it down into really easy um, ways that people can understand with wonderful infographics. They even have um, that data. The data I used in the book was from Joseph Poor and Thomas Nemechek on um, their paper, The Environmental Impacts of Food. I think it's called from 2018, the largest study in the world on the environmental impacts of food, which covered 36,000 different farms across the world and um, did a, a, a big study on the environmental impacts, uh, detailing land use, land acidification, water pollution, et cetera. But they take all that data, uh, the same data we used, and uh, breaks it out into interactive charts. So you could actually turn on the different foods that you're interested in, and you could um, change it to greenhouse gas emissions, land use, et cetera. So it's such yeah. a wonderful resource. Hannah Ritchie uh, was one of the publishers of that website, and she just came out with a book. Um, can't remember exactly what it's called. I'm listening to it on Audible <laughs> right now. Um, I was lazy and wanted to get it right away. I didn't want to get, get it shipped in, but uh, it's all about um, optimism in, in the mm -hmm. face of the environmental um, crisis that we're currently living in. So check yeah. that out if you need a little pick-me-up. 
yeah. <laughs> I think a lot of people could use a lot of pick-me-ups, but yeah. yeah, absolutely. We'll have the links below. Um, everyone definitely check out the book. It's fantastic. But thank you so much, Corey, for your time today. We really appreciate you really educating us on the enormous impact that our decisions as a collective are having on our environment. And uh, we need to act differently soon. So appreciate that. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure being here, Lori. And uh, if you'd like to chat again, I'd be happy to.